listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. I'll be reading from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Many of you are perhaps familiar with John Piper. Uh, John Piper, for uh, many years, kind of semi-retired now, but has been an influential uh, pastor, author, conference speaker. And he shares a story of uh, him speaking at a pastor's panel discussion at one of these seminars. And uh, he said there was a question that came up. Piper says, get rid of my TV, and this other pastor on the panel says, buy more DVDs so that you can engage the culture. How do you reconcile this difference? Piper said, I snapped back, get your sources right. I never said that in my life. He said, uh, almost as soon as it was out of my mouth, I, I felt, oh, Piper, what a jerk you are. Because he says a jerk is someone who nitpicks about the way a question is worded rather than addressing the substance of the question and seeing it as an issue to address something serious. I blew it at multiple levels. So he said, I had an opportunity to respond to this person. I said, you did not ask a bad question. I gave a useless, unhelpful, and snide answer. I don't know why I snapped at the wording of the question instead of using it for what it was intended for. It was proud and, I think, sinful, Pastors uh, Piper said. Uh, end quote. That, there's a couple of significant things going on here that I think are helpful. First of all, Pastor uh, Piper here is at least modeling some good humility. I mean, here's a guy who's well-known, well-regarded, has a staff of who knows how many hundreds of people, gets invited to speak on huge stages, and, and yet he's willing to acknowledge where he says, I was a jerk, and I blew it, and I was wrong, I was rude. He also gives a helpful warning uh, to us about ways that we can act like that with that definition. A jerk is someone who nitpicks the way the question is worded instead of dealing with the substance of the issue and addressing it in a serious way. Uh, I think there's some truth to that, and and I don't like saying it, but I think that labels me and maybe some of us as jerks at times too, right? Like, that's not what I said. Why are you being so rude? You're not listening to me. I don't like the way you answer. I like you ask that question. And, and, you know, we can get focused on being right more than being corrected 
and nitpicking the way people are bringing up issues and addressing things and the way they're saying it more than what they're saying. And, and, and we pull apart their words and their tone of voice and their body language and, and all the failures they have so that we don't have to listen to what they're saying. But I think there's something good in what Piper says and humble and honest in saying, I don't know why I snapped, but I think it's an opportunity for us to go a little deeper because I think it, re- it relates something that we're all familiar with, something that Jesus wants us to address today. Why do I respond with sarcasm or impatience or a dismissive comment when I'm confronted with something? Why do I get so angry and impatient when my plans are frustrated, when things are interrupted, when, when I don't get what I was hoping to get? We're in this a series called Foundations, looking at what a life under God's kingdom, a flourishing life looks like. And we said last week that a relationship with Jesus produces greater righteousness. And, and that's going to be the, the main theme of this next major section of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is going through uh, a series of interactions with God's law and what it really means in our lives. And he's bringing out this reality that God is looking for not just outward conformity, outward obedience, but whole person rightness. Jesus cares about our hearts being transformed that produces an actual obedience towards God, not the superficial, uh, hypocritical obedience of the religious leaders of his day. And today we're starting with the first of Jesus' interactions around the Old Testament law, A law that's not just about murder, but Jesus says is really about anger and ugly attitudes in our hearts. So you guys can tune out because this is totally irrelevant to the world that we live in and it has nothing to say with us because none of us have any problems with uh, anger or judgment of others. Jesus is speaking right where we live, isn't he? And I think the key thought, the thing to take away in this section is this, that the relationship with Jesus redirects our anger. Relationship with Jesus redirects our anger. If you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles uh, to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 21, the, in the black Bibles in the seat in the pocket underneath in front of you. It's on page 963 or whatever you use to access God's Word. Matthew's clearly wanting to help us see that Jesus is not just the promised Messiah. He is that, but but how his life, in fact, parallels that of Moses, the great lawgiver, the great leader, the great prophet, the great instructor of God's people. Out of Egypt I called my son, and he passes through the water and hears the the approval of the Father, and then is led into the wilderness for 40 days, and now he goes up on a mountain to give God's instruction to God's people in fulfillment of Moses himself promising that God would raise up from among the people a prophet like him that we must listen to. So now Jesus takes up that role as the authoritative interpreter of God's word. And he uses this uh, familiar pattern. You have heard it said, which is what the religious leaders in Jesus' day would start with. That, That was how they would begin a discourse on God's word. You have heard it said, and then they would share their commentary. But nobody would ever go on to say, but I say to you. I mean, could you imagine if Pastor Joey or I stood up here and said that? Look, God's word says this, 
But I'm telling you, I just get like a cold shudder thinking of, that's horrible, right? But because what is that saying? It's, it's saying, I'm above God's word. That, that I am equal to God who gave the word and can interpret it infallibly and, and sit in judgment over you through this word. That's exactly what Jesus does, though. You see, he doesn't appeal to someone else's authority. He, he doesn't uh, put boundaries around his, what he's teaching. He's saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. Meaning, I have equal authority with God to tell you what God's word actually means. So in, in these next six sections in chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, he's, Jesus is going to take an Old Testament teaching or an understanding of the Old Testament law and interpret it, expand it, and amplify it. And each of these sections that we're looking at follows the same pattern, the, the, the law, God's intent, and Jesus' application. Law, God's intent, and Jesus' application of it. He takes up a, a law from the Jewish tradition, shows the true intent and the practical reality of the commandment, and, and he wants to drive it home with urgency in light of the kingdom of God now coming and being available to people. And, and they're all going to be an example of this greater righteousness, this kingdom living in God's people. So, because relationship with Jesus produces greater righteousness, today we want to see how relationship with Jesus redirects our anger. So, first and very briefly, the law in verse 21. It's pretty straightforward. You have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So you shall not murder is clearly a quotation from what we call the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 20, or sorry, Exodus 20, and then restated in Deuteronomy 5. And then the, the second part, whoever murders, that, that's not literally a direct quote from the Old Testament. It's Jesus' summary of several passages commanding the death penalty for murder because he's affirming that God condemns the destruction of innocent human life. But he wants to point beneath the surface of that command to the heart that God wants to address, what, what God really cares about. And that's the second thing, God's intent. What is the intent of God in this law? Verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. A few comments as, as we jump into this text. Your version may read, whoever says raka. That's a, a literal translation of the, the Aramaic word that Jesus uses there. It was a, a term of contempt and abuseful scorn. It, it actually came from this, uh, like the sound of clearing your throat. Raha. It's kind of fun to do, actually. Raka. You guys, maybe we shouldn't practice that later because Jesus says not to say that. That's... That's bad. But we don't use that word, and so commentators suggest uh, parallels in English like dummy or idiot. And of course, brother is just a shorthand for brother or sister. It's, it's anyone in the community. Jesus is not limiting it. But at the end of the verse, then, fool is literally moros or more, from which we get our word moron. 
This idea of foolishness is applied in the Old Testament and throughout the Bible to people whose moral reasoning is impaired and who head in the wrong way in life. They are senseless. Commentator F.F. Bruce suggests Raka expresses contempt for a man's head, you, you stupid. And fool, more expresses contempt for his heart and his character, you scoundrel, you good-for-nothing, you're worthless. As wrong and as devastating as Jesus affirms that murder is, he says the real issue is our heart and our attitudes. Angry judgments, condemnation, insulting words may never lead to murder, but they're just as wrong and worthy of judgment. And, and he combines them all in these three images to make his point. Angry with brother, liable to judgment. Calls brother stupid, liable to the court. Calls brother fool, liable to hell. I was uh, driving here yesterday morning uh, on the way to the elder meeting, and um, how many of you wrestle with this issue when you're coming across the Monon walk, Monon path, like who goes and when, and are we supposed to stop, do we just slow down, there's a stop sign. So I'm coming up to the Monon on my way to church, and there's some people on the path. They're not in the crosswalk. They're just kind of standing around, so I don't know what they're doing, so they're not in the crosswalk. I go through, and, and these, they shoot me a dirty look, and like they're pointing at the stop sign, and, and I shoot them a dirty look, and I point at the stop sign and say, that's your stop sign. And, and then I remembered I was on speakerphone with Mark West at the time. <laughs> your pastor, people. And Mark was commiserating with me, like, oh, yeah, that's so frustrating. That's a pet peeve of mine, too. Like, nobody knows when to go. Nobody follows the rules. And it's not just a pet peeve, though, right? Because what's going on in my heart in that moment is, you fool, you stupid head. How come you don't follow the rules the way I do? If you were as smart and as competent as I am, you'd know whose turn it is and when we're supposed to go. Like, we, that happens at like three, four-way stop signs, right? Like a couple of cars pull up and everyone's waving. Oh, no, you go, you go, you go. And it's just like, no, just follow the rules and it'll all work out. And yet there's still this dynamic of you fool, you moron, you idiot. I mean, we do that on the interstate, right? We get out going however fast we tend to drive. And whoever is going faster than I am is an idiot. And whoever's going slower than I am is a moron. Right? Like that. Get it together, people. Yeah, Jesus is speaking into the reality of our lives, isn't he? He's not separating, you know, these attitudes and the consequences into different categories, right? Like do this and you're in column A, do this and you get outcome B. The metaphors are all connected to make this larger point. Anger, judgment, insulting others is the issue, and judgment, court, hellfire are the consequence, the danger. It's like the Apostle John writes, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Anger and insult are expressions of this desire to want to get rid of someone, to get them out of the way, to diminish them in, in relation to ourselves. Jesus is saying the point of the law was never just, you know, just avoid killing people and you're fine. I mean, 
the message of the law and the prophets is always calling people to pursue a deeper righteousness and to do it from pure motives. Because we all know how to fake it, right? And, and often the prophets are condemning God's people for doing that, going through the motions with a hard heart. It's like the story of the mom who's frustrated trying to get her toddler to sit down and eat. Sit down, sit down, sit down. Finally, the kid sits down and and she says, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Like we, we know how to perform, and Jesus is saying that's not what God is interested in. He, he's looking beneath the surface to what's prompting our behavior. Because Jesus is reminding God's people that true righteousness is not just outward obedience. It is wholeness. It is whole person rightness that comes from a renewed heart in a relationship with Jesus. So to fulfill all righteousness, to to have a, a rightness that surpasses that of good religious people, it means we as disciples have to deal with the issue of the attitudes in our hearts towards one another. I mean, not murdering is good. Everyone agrees on that pretty much. But that is hardly the proof that I love God and my life is aligned with Him and what He wants. To examine and repent of unloving, hard-hearted, angry, condemning attitudes and speech, Jesus says, is just as important as refraining from (laughs) violence. Because He's saying that's what the kingdom of God looks like. This is what kingdom people look like. And that's available to you. That's what I want for you now in relationship with me. That a relationship with Jesus redirects that anger. So, Jesus' application of this. He he then pushes to a couple of examples of how this works out. And the first is uh, relationships in the church. Like in, in verse 23. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift And go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Notice, Jesus is not saying, if you have something against your brother, I mean, that's a real issue, and Jesus talks about it later, but he's saying, we're living in a way that we have an awareness, an acknowledgement that I may have done something wrong, I may have hurt, I may have offended, I may have sinned against someone, and I need to deal with it immediately. He's exhorting his hearers to be reconciled with a brother or sister who might be angry, someone who might have something against us, someone that we've hurt in some way, someone maybe that we've thought of or called a raka or a fool or a moron or an idiot or scorned them in some way. This call to be reconciled horizontally to a brother or sister, you see, cannot be separated from coming together to worship God, whom we claim to be reconciled with vertically. They're absolutely connected, in fact, Jesus says. So, you know, we could say, if, if you're, literally, if you're sitting here today in worship, And you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, that you've harmed them, you've hurt them, you've wronged them. Just, it's better to get up and leave and go deal with it now than to sit here and go through the motions of worship when you're claiming that you're reconciled to God and your brothers and sisters, but you're not. Deal with that issue first, and then come and worship. 
So nobody needs to go to the, you can do that afterwards. You don't have to get up and go right now. That'd be a little awkward, right? But it could be good. The second application seems a a little out of place flowing from the first. Uh, The connection is that both of these situations have to deal with conflict and, and judgment. And Jesus pictures some kind of law dispute. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. And I tell you, truly, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. I don't know that Jesus is necessarily envisioning this literally happening among believers, but he's saying, look, you know how the court system works, right? If you've got someone that's got a case against you, you better reconcile it while you can. Or judgment's going to come and it's going to be too late. Make it right. Make it right, Jesus is saying. How often do do I take it as seriously as Jesus seems to here? If murder is a horrible crime, Jesus is saying malicious anger, insult, self-righteous judgment are horrible too. You may remember the uh, cartoon strip Calvin and Hobbes. Calvin is this... uh, a six-year-old boy with a very active imagination, and he has a stuffed tiger, Hobbes, that comes to life and is Calvin's best friend. And uh, in one strip, Calvin is talking to Hobbes, saying, uh, boy, you know, I, I feel bad that I called Susie names, and, and I really hurt her feelings. I, I'm sorry that I did that. And Hobbes says, well, maybe you should go apologize. And Calvin thinks for a minute and says, I keep hoping there's a less obvious solution. Jesus is saying, there's an obvious solution. And I want you to be sensitive to the seriousness of what this is actually about, what this does. Don't allow estrangement to remain. Don't don't let it grow. Don't delay to put it right. As as soon as you're conscious, as soon as you're aware of of the break, go and deal with it. Because if not, it's just going to grow and it may end up leading to terrible consequences for you because of your unwillingness to resolve it. Whatever it is, if we need to apologize, if we need to pay back what we owe, if we need to make amends relationally, emotionally, financially, Jesus says, make it right. Because a relationship with me will redirect your anger to seek reconciliation with others. So what does this mean for us? What what do we do with this? Well, Jesus warns that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister is liable to judgment. So is it possible to be angry in a good way? Uh, Alyssa Dunker has shared some good resources from uh, her her great class that she's been teaching on anger. Uh, David Paulison, in his book, Good and Angry, puts it this way. At its core, anger expresses, I'm against that. It's an active stance that you take to oppose something that you assess as both important and wrong. It's an active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Now, we, we see Jesus get angry, right? Although, let's be honest, it's, it's pretty rare. It, it's not like Jesus is just sort of, sort of storming through the Gospels, flipping tables over everywhere. That happened once, maybe twice. But it is possible to have righteous anger, at at least for God it's possible. Can our anger be righteous? Now, there are situations of of real evil. 
People doing obviously wicked, horrible, abusive, sinful things. God hates oppression and injustice and hurting others. So what about us? One author suggests this. Righteous anger is concerned with injustice towards others and dishonor towards God. Unrighteous anger is concerned with personal injustice, how I've personally been wronged or hurt. The natural tendency towards anger is corrupted by sin, and and it ends up getting consumed with defending ourselves instead of God and others. Therefore, the author says, we must test our anger. Am I angry because others are being hurt and God is being dishonored, or is this anger just about me being personally inconvenienced and harmed? I think think that's on to something, but I'm not totally sure yet. If the criteria for righteous anger is others being hurt or God being dishonored, that's a loophole big enough to drive a truck through if you think about it. Because God being dishonored is basically human existence, right? That means somebody somewhere is doing something that they shouldn't be doing, which is what we call sin, And if I'm going to get angry every time somebody sins, I'm going to be angry all the time. So can our anger be righteous? I I want to give a definite maybe. I told Ellie Preston yesterday that I was preaching on this passage and and asked her what she thought about this. Can our anger be righteous? And, And I think she had a great answer that she was not willing to come up here on stage and share with us. We can be angry about things that anger God, but we're not perfect like Him, so we're probably never going to be angry righteously the way God is. Our anger can have righteous motives and righteous expressions, but I think we have to acknowledge it's probably rare, and even then it's dangerous, because we can delight in anger. We can grow to actually nourish it and enjoy it and and relish the feeling of being morally superior in how we pass judgment on other people. And and, and it can start growing things like pride and self-righteousness and vengeance in us, even when we're angry about something that God is angry about. Jesus himself calls the Pharisees and his own disciples at times foolish, and and the New Testament writers say the same things about God's people. So Jesus and his apostles, inspired by the Holy Spirit, can can write down words, inspired words calling us foolish, but his judgment I can always trust, and the judgment of God's word I can always trust. My judgment, probably not so much. It, it may very well be the right thing to warn someone that they're heading in a foolish direction, that they're making foolish, self-destructive decisions. But it makes all the difference whether we say that with condemnation or whether we say it with empathy and lament. You see, that, you see there's a huge difference between you fool and, oh, you fool. What is the cause of our anger? Maybe, maybe that's what helps us here. Uh, I think here we can learn from Jedi Master Yoda, who warned us, fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. I think he's reflecting some biblical wisdom there. 
One time in a storm on a boat on a large lake, Jesus' disciples are not just frightened, they're angry with Jesus. Don't you care that we're going to drown? Jesus, of course, cares and Jesus knows. Do you, do you see what's going on there? They're, they're angry because they're frightened. Why aren't you as freaked out as we are? If you have children, you, you've probably been there as a parent. Your, your kid does something that's uh, dangerous, uh, potentially destructive, life-threatening, and uh, you know they, they barely scrape through and they come out alive and, and you scoop them up and there's this overwhelming feeling of, of both gratitude and anger at the same time. Don't ever run out into the street again, you tell them. Why? Because, because our anger is reflecting a, a fear. We're, we're scared that something we value is, is going to be ruined or taken away. And maybe that's a cause of a lot of our social and political and cultural anger. That we're all being conditioned all the time to be afraid and angry at some threat. No matter where it comes from, no matter what party, no matter what position, we're all just soaking in this cultural stew where we're being encouraged to be afraid of what those people are going to do and afraid of where it's going to go, afraid of, afraid of them and angry, angry at the way things are, angry that things aren't the way they should be, angry at the people who are supporting those bad things, angry at people who are in the way of the way we should go, and angry that other people aren't as angry as I am. Our vision for Faith Church is that we would be winsome ambassadors of Jesus Christ to our secular culture. If we're as fearful and angry and stressed out as everyone else, how are we going to be ambassadors of a kingdom of joy and peace? Because that's what Jesus wants that a relationship with him would, would redirect our anger? What, what if Christians were known as people who have a deep, settled joy and, and confidence, that people looked at us and said, why aren't you as stressed out as everyone else? Doesn't this place get to you? Why, why aren't you wound up and angry? And then because we could have joy and peace in our hearts knowing who God is for us and the God who is with us, that we could actually be peacemakers. Oh, because we, we care deeply about issues and policies and things going on in the world and broken relationships, but, but we're not on anyone's side in that sense because the things that we care about don't fall into sides like the way the world wants to divide them up. What we care about is helping people see and experience and reflect more of God's kingdom, His goodness, his rightness, his reconciliation, his wholeness, his flourishing. The fruit of the Spirit is not aggression and hostility and anger, sarcasm, scoring points, winning arguments, putting other people in their place. It's still love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. One of the ways to, to get to, to the root of our anger is to ask myself, what am I afraid of? 
Because anger is often a response to a perceived threat. Something's going to be taken away. Something bad is going to happen. What is it that I'm afraid of? Failure, rejection, poverty, loneliness, being diminished somehow. A relationship with Jesus redirects our anger because as Christians, we, we are people who can pursue kindness and gentleness and, and patience and reconcile with enemies because we've already been reconciled with God. We already have His peace. We, we already have His forgiveness. And, and as we live out of that, it can flow through us into those relationships. And, and it and enables us to look at people with the same grace and patience and kindness that God has shown to us in Christ. But because we know that Jesus is in the boat with us and, and that no power of hell, no force on earth, nothing that comes against us is going to undo God's purposes or separate us from his love for us in Christ. So we fight our tendency towards anger and judgment by cultivating peaceful hearts so that we are the blessed peacemakers, the children of God. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what Jesus invites us to experience. Uh, I have a, at our last house and in this house, they seem to follow me, a yard full of too many strangler vines. You know those little things that come up and they wrap around bushes and flowers and trees and they want to choke out everything beautiful that grows in the garden and, and they'll take over if you don't deal with them. I mean, one solution is just to ignore them, like you could look at it and go, hey, free ground cover, who cares? But, you know, you could also say, that's not really what I want the yard to look like. It's not very attractive. I, I don't have a problem. If you have a problem with me being angry and judgmental, then you've got the problem. Or, you know, we can see maybe how short-sighted and destructive that is, and, and so we try and take care of the vines and tell ourselves, you know, okay, I, God, I, I really want you to help me be more patient. I, I, I need to get rid of this anger, this judgment, this sarcasm. And, you know, I can be good at that, right? Like you, you take the weed eater and you just whack down the strangler vines and then the problem's gone. You don't, you don't have to see it anymore, but you haven't really gone beneath the surface to deal with where the vines are coming from. That's one of the things I hate about them, right? Because you go to pull them off and, and they snap off and leave like an inch below the soil, the root is still there. I, I can see that anger and sarcasm and judgment and fault-finding and, and being proud and looking down on other people are wrong. So, so we, we cut them down and we think the work is done. If, if we're going to get to the fruit, we have to deal with the root, Jesus is saying. Until I get to the root of why I snap at people. Like John Piper was saying, I don't know why I snap. It just happened. Well, then it's probably going to keep happening until I figure out why it's happening. Why am I sarcastic? Why am I angry? Why am I judgmental? Why am I impatient? Why do I need to justify myself to those ladies in the crosswalk at the Monon on 91st Street? There's something going on in me that I'm not going to solve by just saying, ah, I shouldn't be that way. And it takes time, because 
if I don't slow down to ask God to help me get to the root of that, I'm just going to keep skating past it and lopping the tops of it off. And, and then I can offer some, you know, sort of shallow, insincere, pro forma apologies. I'm sorry if you got hurt, or I'm sorry I'll try to do better. But if I don't really know what's going on to deal with the issue and invite Jesus to help me deal with it, it's not going to redirect my anger. Relationship with Jesus is what redirects my anger. It gives me both the freedom and the resources to get to the root because I already know that I'm loved and forgiven in Christ and now I can get down beneath the soil and examine the roots and pull them up and ask Jesus to help me bring the gospel to bear on those things that feel scary or threatening or overwhelming to me so that I can respond out of his resources and his grace to me. That's what Jesus wants for us. That's what Jesus has come to give us, to invite us into his kingdom of love and joy and hope, to redirect our anger in good ways. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your wisdom, your understanding, and your grace to us. Thank you that in knowing our often unrighteous anger, you do not condemn us. You warn us because you love us and you help us. Help us, Jesus, to be people who love peacemaking, who love unity, who love forgiveness and reconciliation more than being right, winning scoring points. May we be winsome ambassadors for your kingdom, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.